Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in for the Savvy Millennials podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. And today with us, we have Wilson Kwan. He's a seasoned business leader at Fan Advisors Group, which is a boutique consultant firm in Toronto. Wilson has an extensive background in finance, accounting, and corporate restructuring. Prior to joining his current firm, Wilson has over 10 years of public practice experience, as he was previously a director with PwC and spent seven years in their corporate advisory and restructuring practice. Wilson has been involved in several high-profile restructurings from $20 million to $5.4 billion in size in industries ranging from real estate, oil and gas, aviation, cannabis, high-tech, and retail. During this episode, Wilson is going to share his experience with us, and we're also going to discuss how businesses should prepare themselves during these challenging times, best practices, and how to set yourself up for success. And with that, please welcome Wilson. Hi, Wilson. Thank you for being with us. Now, for everyone who maybe doesn't know you or what you do, do you mind giving us a quick introduction and background where you've been, where you came from, and what are you doing now? Hi, Maria. Thanks for having me on and happy to do that. So my name is Wilson Kwan. I'm a senior director at a boutique financial consulting firm called Fan Advisors. And I've had a interesting and long career in public practice. So for all the accountants out there, you know, going through the CPA path, that's what I did. So I've been in public practice for over 10 years, you know, and that goes all the way back from, you know, high school and going into post-secondary. I went through the CA recruit in 2008 when I was 18, landed a summer internship at 19, and then I articled full-time at 20, and I got my CA designation at 22. This was all in Vancouver at Deloitte. And then shortly after getting my CA, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. So after some soul searching, I joined the restructuring practice at PricewaterhouseCoopers in Vancouver and just moved up the ranks and got a lot of great experience, met a lot of people. And finally, I got offered a position out in Toronto with the firm uh, and I moved in 2016. And so I've been in Toronto since 2016, and it's been a fantastic run so far. So that's just kind of my quick overview. I love it. And I love how much experience you've been able to accumulate over the past, I would say, 30 years of your life. First of all, I mean, getting your designation at 22. I don't think that's a normal thing for every accountant. I used to do accounting before. And I don't think it's for everyone. How did you manage that? I would say even among the people who were super focused on getting into a firm, I was probably a year or two ahead. And it had to do a mix of the school I went to, which was BCIT, Institute of Technology. And that was like eight courses a semester. It was super intense, but, and you were in small classes. You would get your degree in three years, uh, and then you can mix your uh, work experience or co-op program uh, at the tail end of it. So when I went to BCIT initially, right away in that first semester, when you know, you're know you a first year outside high school, I went to all the recruiting events. I did those uh, round table, like they called it speed dating, uh, recruiting. And I met all the firms and because I knew right away, I'm like, I want to be a CA. I want to go work in an accounting firm. And I just already knew in that first semester, this is what I needed to do. And so just to get that network and, and meet the people so that 
in my second year, when that was the time to actually apply for a summer internship, I already knew the players. I've already met some people uh, in the industry because, you know, as anyone knows, when you're starting out, the easiest thing you can do is just ask for help from someone who's either been through the CA recruit or just been through, you know, what you're about to go through. And so I did that right off the bat and I got that experience. And in the second year, I went straight for applications uh, for summer internship and I was fortunate enough to land something. I love it. Now, is it a path that a lot of uh, people can take now or it's closed, it's gone, you were the last one who had this opportunity? <laughs> Universities and schools, if you want to do the accounting route, it's a feeding ground for the accounting firms, right? And the accounting firms like you know, the big four and the national six and, and all the mid-sized firms as well. In Vancouver, Deloitte and PwC, they, they would hire 30 to 40 full-time articling students and summer interns. So that's, you know, 160 jobs among the big four. And I think typically there's two to 300 positions in Vancouver. And Vancouver is a smaller market than Toronto is. So I would expect Toronto probably fills about 300 to 500 jobs. So you have all these students from all these great universities, all smart and bright, capable people. Then it's more about, are you going out to these networking events? Are you doing stuff outside of school to broaden your portfolio? Because at the end of the day, you're competing against all your classmates and all your friends who have equally similar GPAs, who are equally as smart. So what else have you done? That will carry on in life for in whatever you do, because no matter what job you're applying for and what position you're going after, if you're shortlisted among five people, you are probably the top five people in whatever industry and whatever job you're going for. So it's what else have you done? Right. And that's a question that will always be asked. And I've experienced countless times uh, through even my interview processes. Well, I love this. I love how you mentioned, you know, what else have you done now with COVID, the pandemic, making everyone go uh, digital. And unfortunately, a lot of people either losing jobs or trying to look for new opportunities. Everything is online, everything over Zoom. So I guess, do you have an advice for someone who is looking for a job, uh, maybe in consulting, maybe in any other professional industry? And, you know, what should they do right now to stand out? When I used to do recruiting for the firms, one of the things that I actually found quite powerful with some of the candidates uh, that we would uh, interview and have coffees with and just meet is the persistence and perseverance of some of these candidates who would make sure they do as much research as they can about the group that they want to join. So in the restructuring world, when I was at the firm, we had probably 15 to 20 people in our like sub-department. So some of these candidates would research every single person, you know, ask them out for coffees, send a LinkedIn message, send emails, do some research. So a lot of times, you know, I would put some of the public cases that I've worked on or, you know, some of the industries that I've been in. And, you know, in these interviews, they would actually ask me and they would actually say, oh, you worked on this file. I did some reading on it. Uh, I'm curious why it went this way. And it's just that proactiveness. It's just that eagerness that 
you know, when you're looking for a job and, you know, you want to impress the recruiters, it's just those small attention to detail that really sets that candidate apart. Because I'm sure we've all been there where, you know, you take these coffees and you meet people, and nowadays it's virtually, and you get the same generic questions, you know, tell me about your day-to-day, you know, what is restructuring? What's a day like as a, as a director, you know, just the basic generic questions. And so that's why the proactive candidates who do a, just that extra step of digging, and it's not hard nowadays, especially with LinkedIn, especially with Google, to do that extra background work because it's things like that that just stick in my mind as the recruiter you know, even now, like that was probably a year since I've interviewed that candidate. And I still remember that. I was just like, wow, you actually did your homework. Things like that. Just be proactive and do the research in the area that you actually want to work in and try to meet the team. You know, don't be afraid to send a LinkedIn message because, you know, it doesn't cost anything to do that. I love it. I love how you mentioned that, you know, the good old preparation and just going that extra mile always works. It's never going to get out of style. In terms of your current role, so you went from public accounting into consulting, correct? Yes. So I moved from public practice from PwC to now a smaller boutique, I would say consulting uh, firm as well. It's kind of the same model as, you know, a big firm where, you know, we're offering our professional services for a cost. And, you know, the companies, uh, we reach out to the same, you know, companies, the pool of companies and to offer our services. What kind of clients do you see right now? And what do you see their biggest, largest pressure points are right now? Uh, it's a great question. So when I was at, you know, PwC, working there, you work on multinational, big, big companies. So I worked on, you know, restructuring files where it was a real estate company that owed, you know, three to $400 million in debt and had 15 properties across Canada to an oil and gas company that had $5.4 billion in debt that was headquartered in Toronto with assets in Colombia and the creditors in America. So you go from that now over to a boutique consulting firm where our clients now are more in that small, medium enterprise space. So somewhere between 5 million in revenue to 50 million in revenue. And, you know, you're dealing more with family run operations or, you know, smaller management teams that, you know, don't have, you know, that full in-house expertise, or maybe they're just past the startup phase and, trying to to grow larger. So part of the reason why I switched was I had, you know, some exposure to this size of a clientele at the firm. And now over at Fan Advisors, I wanted to, you know, help more companies in that small and medium size demographic. Because as we know, Canada is primarily made up of businesses of these size. So I wanted to be more of a business advisor in that sense. And so that's part of the reason why I switched over. Right now, especially given 
the COVID situation, uh, it's no surprise to anyone that uh, companies are not struggling, but like are seeing significant reductions in their revenues and increases in their costs because, you know, customers are not spending like they used to. We're not traveling around. We're not going out. We're not eating out. You know, we're not spending the same kind of money we did pre-pandemic. So, that has a ripple effect among the entire economy. Then all of a sudden, companies who have a reduced cash flow need to now consider uh, supplier costs, need to consider, you know, do I have enough cash to start to keep making timely payments to my suppliers? Uh, if the answer is no, or I need to start to delay then those payments that you delay then creates financial pressures for those companies. And, it, and that's why it just trickles down. And I think that's the hardest thing to deal with right now. The government's done a good job in Canada, in my opinion, you know, with the CWS, the uh, wage subsidy, uh, as well as small business loans to just kind of keep the lights on during this period. That's amazing to hear that you think that the government's done well. Now, for the companies that are out there looking for more support, looking for an idea to pivot and what to do during this pandemic, especially when they are anticipating the second wave, what would be your suggestion for them? I'm going to talk a little more broadly from my restructuring experience. I think as a company preparing and bracing for, you know, the downturn, I mean, we're already in a downturn, but uh, an extended continued downturn, you know, who knows how long this might be, another 12 months, 18 months. I mean, where I think we're on a potential verge of a, a second wave, especially in Toronto here. I would say take this time right now to really focus on your financials. And I say that broadly, and you know, a lot of people are probably going to roll their eyes or like, you know, the accountants are going to be like, yeah, obviously that makes sense. But when you think of a small and medium-sized company, you know, let's say, you know, it's a company making 20 million or less in revenues, you probably have, you know, a good accountant, a good controller, good financial controls, you know, maybe you're using QuickBooks, maybe you're using Xero or some other accounting software, and you can see your monthly P&L. So, you know, what your profit and loss is, you know, what your balance sheet is, you know, what, you know, your AR and AP. So that's all great stuff. But it's always a point in time. And it's always generally historical. So even if you ran the cash flow statement, it's only at a point in time. When I help companies restructure and when I'm brought in as an advisor and we're helping the companies go through difficult times, the first thing we ask for is, do you have a cash flow? A cash flow that actually shows the cash needs of the business going forward. Monthly is good, but the best is a weekly cash flow. And typically what we prepare is a 13-week cash flow. And then you'll need to actually plot, you know, all your inflows and outflows. And I think the, the biggest things that accountants usually trip up on and business owners trip up on is accrual versus accounting. So accrual meaning that I know I, I've sold something. I know that that revenue is going to come in at some point. So I'm going to put it here. But in reality... When does that cash actually come in? Does it come in at 30 days or will it come in at 45 days or will it come in next week? Like, so you have to put then more certainty on those inflows and outflows to give you a true 
cash flow, a true indication of what your cash burn is and what your cash position is. And one thing that happens in distress and restructuring that companies don't normally account for is what I call like a double whammy. Customers who are also feeling distress will likely delay their payments to you. So if you have net 30 terms, if you want to be conservative on your cash flow, you should actually push that out, you know, 45 days, 60 days, you know, depending on your negotiations with your customers. And then the other part is suppliers. So now now you're not getting cash in from your customers when you think you are because it's getting deferred or delayed. Now you got supplier payments where it might be coming due and you might be trying to delay them. But if you're in a business where you have to buy parts and inventory, they might not supply you parts for that next order because you, you're you know, behind 60 days or you're behind 90 days. So they might now ask you for cash on delivery. So not only are your customers delaying payment, now your suppliers may also be requesting cash up front in order to deal with purchasing more inventory. So just another forecasting tool that I recommend uh, building during this time. I guess when they build this tool and they realize the cash flow is actually going to be a problem, what do you do next? I guess the question would be, yes, they projected 12, uh, 12 weeks and they see that, you know, they push things out and they realize there's potentially going to be a disaster. Then what? It depends on the company, depends on the capital structure, and it depends on why it's going there, uh, right? So is it an operating issue that you need to look into. So again, if you're the business owner, if you're the CEO, work with your accountant to try to figure out from a P&L perspective, you know, is there fat that can be trimmed? Are there operating costs that in a pandemic I should be avoiding right now? Do I need to be spending money on R&D? Do I need to be spending money on marketing? I remember seeing uh, like Coca-Cola and some of the other big companies cutting a lot of marketing expense during this time to save costs and, and looking at your headcount and looking at employees especially with uh, the wage subsidy right now, like, is there anything that you can do to save on costs? So I would say the first option that you look at is where can I save costs? What line items and, you know, what is critical today? And what can be saved until, you know, this pandemic's over and we can get back on the track and then I can spend the money on, you know, whatever project or whatever initiative that I want to roll out, can that be delayed to a later time? Then we look at other aspects, what I would call the more of the external aspects. So if a company is coming up to a, what do we call a liquidity event uh, or a crisis where you run out of cash, does your company have a good relationship with your banker? And this is where you'll have to work with your banker to figure out, okay, given my current operating facility, do I have enough room or borrowing base margin? So borrowing base is usually, you know, some calculation of availability based on the company's accounts receivable or inventory. So even though you might have a $10 million operating line, maybe your borrowing base only allows you to borrow up to $8 million. So then it's like, okay, does my company have other assets? Do I have real estate assets? Do I have investments? Do I have anything else that I could offer up as collateral to the bank? Because 
bank, I need a bulge facility. A bulge meaning uh, for the next six months, I need this little bump up of, let's say, an extra couple million dollars to get through this period. And that's why I said forecasts and cash flows are very important because you want to go to those meetings prepared. If I prepare a 13-week cash flow or a longer-term 12-month cash flow, and I say, we're going into the winter, now that I've kind of experienced what March to June was like with COVID, here's what I think you know the next six months going to look like. And I'm going to run a deficit. It's going to be X dollars. Dear banker, is there anything you can do for me? And if the banker comes back and he says, well, I'm a little concerned about my collateral position, that's where you say, well, maybe I have real estate or maybe I have investments that I can top up your collateral. This way you can let me borrow an extra little bit so that I can fund my operations over the next six months. That would be option two. You know, Work with your banker to try to figure out what the alternatives are. There's a lot of money ready waiting on the sideline to invest during this time. Then it becomes, can I convince the financier to invest in my business? And whenever I go in as a consultant to do a, what we call a business review, I look at you know some of the just most basic things. You know, what's the business here? Is there a good product or a good service that this company is offering? Yes or no? Are the customers sticky? Are there substitutes for this product? And three, why did the company you know, run into the financial difficulties that they've ran into? Is it because of COVID purely? Or is it a mix of cost overruns? They had a project, but they were overdue on it. You know, there's a Maybe interest is too high and they're just burning through a lot of the cash that's available. You know, so what's the reason there? So if you as a business owner can answer those questions and put that in a nice format to take to either your banker or to a financier, that will help your odds tremendously because lots of asset managers and lots of funds who have capital right now are seeing significant deal flow go to them because lots of people in the economy right now are looking for money because of the current situation. I've heard uh, maybe rumors, but maybe not so rumors that a lot of private equity firms, um, BC firms, angel investors are sitting right now on cash and they're just waiting to, you know, see where the business goes and where the companies will end up just to scoop them up for cheaper. So I guess in that sense, what should businesses do? And I guess what should be their approach to start the conversations with the right people? Is there a recommendation that, you know, businesses should go out there and find opportunities? That's an interesting question. And it depends which hat I want to wear. And, and I'll, I'll kind of clarify that. So when I was at uh, the big firm, we would advise, you know, bankers, lenders on the credit side, as well as private equity firms. And that's a different point of view because it's like you said, you know, they're looking to scoop up companies for cheap, right? And typically what that means is it's definitely going to be more hostile than friendly, uh, especially if they go into a deal knowing that it's going to be a leveraged buyout, knowing that they're going to 
you know, maybe they lend in at a high interest rate with uh, an equity component where they convert to equity and take the company or they lend into a company knowing that the company will not survive and then they'll put it through a formal court appointed uh, restructuring process to essentially bid their debt and take over the company. So, and that's all things I'm happy to dive into on a, on a separate thing because it's very complicated. But the other side, which is now where I'm on the company side and I'm trying to help companies restructure and prevent things like that from happening, or at least do the best of my abilities, that is where you have to be very pragmatic on who you want to get in bed with. And I think that obviously goes uh, without saying. And making sure that you know, the lenders or whoever you're dealing with, you know, believes in your company and in the product that you have to sell. And to try to figure out, you know, what the terms of the deal are and, you know, whether they are setting themselves for a big advantage, i.e. taking over your company at some point. So is there a recommendation here for the uh, for companies to go and see capital right now? The answer is it, it depends on your needs, right? It depends on and your existing relationship with your banker right now. Most banks are trying to help their portfolio companies because one, the interest rates are so cheap right now. And two, from what I'm hearing in the industry, at least right now, there's been a lot of workouts with the bank's clients so that, you know, one, you don't lose the client to special loans, which then you get companies that go through restructuring processes and then eventually company has to, to sell their business or do whole sorts of different things. But banks actually want to actually work with their portfolio company. So I would, again, suggest reaching out to your existing lenders and see if there's an opportunity to work with them and unlock any more cash flow that you need to fund your business during this time. I love it. Always work with your banker and keep them close because they're your biggest fan and probably your best resource during these times. Totally agree with you on that one. Now, I guess from all of your experience in the public space and the private space, working with large companies, medium and small, if you look through your experience, what do you think are or were the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs made and what lessons would you want to pass along to other entrepreneurs? Especially working in the restructuring space, keeping in mind that I only get engaged when a company is in that down part of that life cycle, you know, your business life cycle graph, you got the early stage and then it matures and then you got the part that starts to drop off. So I deal with a lot of companies in that stage and a lot of it is what happened and why did they get there? And part of it just might be your product is now obsolete and you didn't innovate fast enough and that's it is what it is. And that's sometimes to no fault to anyone. And sometimes it's just poor management, poor execution, and just not having the right skill sets at that management level. So I'm going to dive into that one a little bit. And so what I've seen for some companies that struggled more than others and I've seen it more in, in family-run businesses. And sometimes it's just the nature of family-run businesses where, you know, all the power is kept with the family. And what that means is 
a lot of functions and responsibilities become siloed. I was on one company where the CFO was an outside hire. And in many respects, he would either be the last to know or not included in key strategy meetings. And then it makes it very difficult, again, when you're going through financial distress and when you're trying to work with your banker to then try to present to him a cash flow or a forecast and not be able to answer questions, simple questions from the bankers about what's the strategy here? Like, what are you guys going to do about, you know, gross margin dropping or your rising cost of goods sold or this increase in salaries and just not having that privy because these companies run so silo. Payroll doesn't, HR doesn't talk to accounting, accounting doesn't, except for sending them, you know, a monthly summary that then the accountant you know, pops into the accounting software and that's all you know. And then uh, the accounting team rarely talks, you know, with the sales team because all the interactions need to go through either the CEO or the sons and daughters or within that family bubble. It is very inefficient and it's led in the long run to a lot more I wouldn't say is a direct correlation to financial hardship, but it creates that friction that is not needed and is not typically seen in a non-family run corporation. Got it. So basically with the, I guess, working with the family, it's never ideal. Now, any tips on if you're working with your husband or with your wife, how do you manage the situation in the business properly to make sure that all the bases are covered and nobody's missing anything? I think it goes back to just uh, good governance, you know, good transparency. If it's a small business where it's you and your spouse uh, running a whatever it is, and, you know, one person's good on sales and the other person's good on, you know, relationships or, you know, financial. At the end of the day, whether it's a small business or a large business, whoever has designated people to be in that C-suite, you know, chief whatever, and as well as any of the SVPs, whoever's supposed to be in that management team should be in the know of everything that's going on. That's just good governance, you know, and yes, there are going to be times where certain information needs to be privy, but if you're going to have month-end, monthly, or weekly, or bi-weekly, you know, reporting, looking at financial metrics, and talking about strategy, or chasing a new client or something down the pipeline, you know, when you have those management meetings, everyone who you've already designated as management needs to be in the know because even working at a big firm, everyone wants to run a hundred miles. Everyone wants to be recognized. But uh, some of the risks that you might have is if people don't know you're chasing a sales lead and you know, other people want to go after the same one. If you don't have that open communication and simple transparency, it might come off completely unprofessional that one company is targeting the same person three times. It's just those things where if you just have that open dialogue and open communication and, and similar thing, as, as you were saying, if it was a husband and wife combo, you know, it's no different than being in a relationship and having that open communication and transparency to run your business. 
I love it. I love the open communication. It, I guess I would say it's my motto. It's what I operate by all the time in all my relationships. It seems to work. So I think <laughs> it would be similar to business. I guess in which case does the company know to engage a crisis manager? Or, you know, what are the signs that the company is in default and you really need some help, right? Because entrepreneurs are usually really hopeful. They're really known for pushing through, hustling and trying to make things work. And they know it's not going to be easy. But what would you suggest as, you know, a sign that you should seek external help, maybe restructuring, maybe a crisis manager or someone to talk to? The first sign is obviously the start of financial difficulty. And what I mean by that is, you know, when things were going well, you, the business owner or the company has been making payments to all your suppliers on time, net 30, you know, doing everything that you need to, to keep things running smoothly. I think the first sign is once those everyday creditors that you've been paying, you know, whether it's, you know, buying widgets or whether it's paying for cleaning services, whatever the case may be, once you start missing payments because you're running a little low on cash, but don't worry, I missed this one time, I'll catch you up the next month. That's the start of it, right? Then as it starts to escalate, because COVID's been happening and some companies have seen a complete drop off in revenue and now it's slowly picking back up, or maybe it's just a gradual decline in revenue. So now you see that, you know, in the next six months, I'm losing 10% of revenue every month and I don't know when the bleeding's gonna stop. Therefore, I need to start making decisions about when I can pay creditors and when I can pay my lenders and interest and all of that. I would say where I start to get engaged on companies and I start to help companies through is when you start missing loan payments to your bank or when you start breaching bank covenants. Because the moment you start, you know, bank covenants being like, debt service ratio, so interest over EBITDA or, you know, loan to, uh, debt to equity ratios, whatever covenants you have in your loan documents and you start breaching that, uh, I guarantee you within the next review period, you're getting a call from your lender or the bank manager and you're going to have that discussion. And what they're going to want to ask you is, how are you going to get through this? And do what you have your- a 12-week cash flow? Hey. And that's what you're presenting them. Exactly. So that's a lot of times what the bank asks for, especially if your loan with the bank has gone into a department called special loans. You know, the business owner has a good understanding of what product he offers and how they're going to get through this. But the problem is they can't put it on paper. And what I mean by that is, uh, let's say, their accounting team is a traditional accounting team, great at putting together the books and records, doing month-end reporting, quarter-end reporting, you know, annual reports, dealing with the auditors, a lot of the you know, typical accounting roles. But you got to put it on paper where you actually show, here's what the cash flow looks like. Here's a qualitative explanation of what we're going to do to change in the next three months or six months, or let's say I have assets that I'm going to divest and I'm going to sell. Here's how long it's going to take. Here's a timeline. And the proceeds that I get from that will pay off term loan A, term loan B. And here's where it's shown in the cash flow. And it's just that presentation of data 
And I work with companies, you know, one, they don't have the cash flow built. And two, they need to get that all on paper to present to the bank. And it's in those discussions and in those meetings with the bank, that's how you get them on side. And that's how they have much more comfort on the loan that they have out with the company. You know, they can either, that the company can survive and continue to service the debt during this time. And then the the difference from before I get involved is the company would usually deal with the bank verbally or, you know, it's the lender that I've dealt with for the last 15 years. He knows my story. But once it goes to special loans, special loans doesn't know, you know, the long standing relationship between the company and the bank. And the special loans manager is dealing with 30 fires right now and they don't have the time. And so that's why preparing this report that explains the story, how the company got there, what they're doing to get out of the current situation. And here's what the cash flow looks like. Here's what the bank's security looks like. Here's all your facilities. And here's all the assets that cover that loan facility. Then the banker feels a bit more comfortable and can now make a more well-rounded credit decision on the loan that's outstanding. And I mean, it's obviously better to never end up in the special credit unit. Um, (laughs) So it's better to be proactive and, you know, have all your ducks in a row, always trying to be proactive. And I think the best advice from you is, you know, the 12-week cash flow, create it early, make sure you track it, especially during this time for the next year or two years where nobody knows it's going to happen. I think it's going to be quite beneficial. Now, for companies that are looking to pivot or maybe entrepreneurs who are trying to get into the entrepreneurial journey, what do you think would be the next opportunity for you know, 2021, the rest of 2020? Or what is the industry that you see the most promise in that people could get involved or look into? I think that's a broad question. It's hard to answer because like, you know, for every industry, it's very different. And even for myself, so when I was at PwC, I'm big into tech. I love tech. Uh, In 2017, I built my own crypto mining uh, equipment just because I wanted to learn how cryptocurrency and blockchain work. So that was kind of a passion of mine. And while I was at uh, PwC in 2019, they had this program called the Digital Accelerator Program. And 700 people applied uh, across Canada, 125 people got picked to essentially then spend 25% of your time at the firm digitally upskilling. And during that time, I got to learn software such as Alteryx, Tableau, Power BI, UiPath. And so for all the developers out there, you'll know that much better than I am. You know, I'm still an accountant at heart. But it's taking this time, especially if you're off work and you have time to pivot to something else. There's no question that technology and software and anything along those lines is the future. And obviously in COVID, This has accelerated this now because now leaders at the top have now realized in several industries that, oh, you could actually work from home or we need to now transition our IT and our data online or on the cloud or grant VPN access. So the the software that I started upskilling in, Alteryx and Tableau, those are data visualization and data 
aggregation tools and they sort through data phenomenally. And it's things like that, that when you look at big data, which is, you know, a hot topic these days and just trying to figure out what are macro trends, you know, what are specific trends? It's just having that understanding. That'll be very key in the future. So take this time to upskill yourself. There's tons of awesome programs out there like Coursera or Codecademy or some of these other ones that are free. You can learn whatever you want now online. And if you have the time, I highly recommend doing that because it will just propel your career so much further. And that's what I recommend, actually, when you're looking to pivot and trying to figure out what's the future. I love it. I mean, first of all, whoa, hold on a second. I don't think I ever talked about you coding and creating your own crypto miner before. Uh, So that's interesting. I guess on the side, is that something that you do? You code something, creating a startup or not? The coding bit was uh, learning coding for like data and, you know, using the tools like UiPath and, and whatnot, just to build really simple bots. So I am nowhere near a programmer or anyone who's out there. So definitely not advocating that. Being a finance guy and being a person who likes, you know, trading the markets and learning about crypto and learning about how it works, I think that technology is phenomenal. I think fintech, something especially in Canada that needs to revolutionize and and move faster uh, in that space, especially seeing some of the technologies out in Asia, just how far along they've gotten. And I think crypto, just the technology of crypto, like let's just leave the debate of whether it's uh, legit or not, but the actual technology and transferring tokens and assets nearly instant is phenomenal. That was more of a side hobby just to learn about it so I could be able to talk somewhat intellectually about it. <laughs> I love it. No, I love the I love the passion and I love the side project, side hustle, just to keep yourself agile and sharp. And I totally agree with you. You know, during this time, I do believe that technology is obviously the way the world is going. And I think, you know, how our generation had to know how to create an Excel model, PDF documents and PowerPoints. I think the next generation will have to know how to code. I think it will be a requirement for your job that you're going to get out of school is to code or create something online. So it's very interesting that you used to do it. So I guess now that you're obviously engulfed in all kinds of industries, how do you keep yourself up to date on the current events, trends, things that are happening, books that you're reading to keep yourself intellectually sharp? Any resources you consume, what would those be? Great question. I think uh, keeping up with the times right now is very important, especially with what's going on uh, during the pandemic and just understanding, you know, what the current situation is, is important. I follow the markets a lot. So I get a lot of my news just from things that are happening, mostly in the States, you know, with the stimulus packages and, you know, what's going on down there, because a lot of what happens in the States guides you know, what financially happens around the world. So that's where I consume some of my just daily what's going on financial market news. Now that I've moved over to Fan Advisors, a boutique firm, and I'm part of their management team, you know, some of the services we offer, among other things, is restructuring consulting, 
uh, as, I, as we've talked about, but also as uh, interim CFO or acting CFO of companies. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about, you know, just managing C-suite positions because that's relatively new for me and obviously not for the people I work with. And so one of the books that I actually uh, picked up recently is called CEO Next Door. And it's a book that talks about, you know, just the behaviors and traits of CEOs and how they manage themselves, their staff, their expectations. So I thought that was a very good read. And so especially all the entrepreneurs out there who've either never been a CEO, who've never been in a C-suite position, but are running your own business and having to manage staff. I think that's a really good primer just to understand what the expectations are, how to run a good team, how to run it smoothly, how to deal with conflicts and resolution. I, I think that's just general business leadership. I think that's a great book. I love it. So I guess my next question would be, what separates the greatest companies that make it and grow big to the ones who don't quite make it? What would be your opinion? According to the book, and uh, you know, hopefully not butchering the actual meaning of it, but uh, it's relying on the people that surround you and being able to make decisive decisions with 80% of the information. And so it goes on and they interviewed like a thousand CEOs or something along those lines. And they said that a decisive CEO has a bigger impact to you know, shareholder return and the company growth than CEOs who want to make every decision perfect. Growing up, we always want to make sure that, you know, the product that we give, whatever we're delivering on has to be absolutely perfect. So I need to wait, you know, on the client to give me this piece of information or I need to wait on this person to calculate that thing so I can have the most perfect analysis to present. But what does that end up adding you an extra couple of days, an extra week, an extra two weeks? Does it materially change the decision you're going to make? So that's why it says with 80% of the information that you have, can you make a decisive decision? Will you then eventually build a long enough track record of good decisions, right? And so that's how CEOs are judged. And it's obviously easier said than done. You don't want to just go in and be like, all right, I'm going to make a ton of decisions. It's also utilizing the staff responsible for whatever decision is being made. So is it your regional manager? Is it your department head that has to go ahead with whatever decision you're going to make? So if that's the case, then make sure that you get their input and make sure that a lot of the data that you're being fed is from the people who are actually going to carry out your vision. I love it. I mean, I like how you summarize the book. I don't think I need to read it anymore. Uh, just <laughs> kidding. I will pick it up. Or there's also, I, I, I assume the book is on Blankist or Audible. So I'm sure. Uh, yeah, it's on Audible. So I, I like listening to the books. <laughs> right? Um, it's just so much more efficient. I, I do like it too. So I guess for you, if you could go back to your younger self, what would be your suggestion or advice to yourself? You know, it's funny. I laugh about this. So I chose the accounting road because accounting's safe and I'm good with numbers and, and all that. But, you know, I built my crypto rig. I've also built computers in the past as well. So I do like computers. And if I were to do this again, I'd probably do software engineering or software programming or something along those lines because it's those people who are changing the world. I mean, if you think about 
Tesla, if you think of SpaceX, if you think of you know Blue Origin, you think of companies like that. It's all software now, especially in our today's age. And you know, if you want to be on the cutting edge, and if you want to know what's happening in the world, I think programmers and uh, you know software developers, that's where the world's headed. And I wish I had 12 years of experience in, in that field, you know, if I were to do this again. But going back to the finance world, I think I'm happy with the decisions that I've made and uh, to get to where I am. And a lot of it was due to planning. And when they say, where do you want to be in five years? I actually had a five-year plan where every year I wanted to achieve certain things because it's those things that you achieve and it's just little things that you build one after another, go to this networking event, speak at this conference, get noticed by this person, and then get promoted here. And then it just snowballs throughout your career. And you know, although I made one switch from Deloitte to PwC, you know, I spent three years in one and seven years in another. Whereas nowadays, you know, a lot of my friends are switching companies every year, every other year. And that's great for, you know, instant gratification, instant money and instant title changes. You might not get that same learning growth. And I think that's important, right? And I think understanding, you know, how corporate works or how politics works or how to grow in the same environment with the people that you work with is a skill set on its own, you know, soft skills, essentially. I totally agree with you. I think, you know, I mean, millennials do get the rap of, you know, staying at any job no longer than two to three years, um, which, I mean, it depends on the person. And I think it also depends on the values and the culture that the company presents. Because we are driven, apparently, as a generation, more by passions and interests than money itself. So I guess <laughs> yeah. if the company supports the vision and the passions that we try to hone, I think we would stay there forever. But I guess the question would be, what do you think is the ideal culture and how to create it for companies that are starting out? For you, that you've seen so many businesses. What do you think are the key tips or advice for the entrepreneurs who are trying to build the perfect great culture? I think it's important for the entrepreneur to have a clear vision of where they want to go. While I've moved over to a smaller company, I'm part of their management team. And this is kind of my pseudo entrepreneur route as well. And what I've found as well is what's your vision? Where do you see it going? And, you know, maybe it's a one year out, two years out, because you have to convince your team to buy into that. I think that's really important. So have an ambitious goal, but not too ambitious that it's like, oh, man, that's way too far fetched. And to then have buy in with your team and making sure that you've actually hired the right people to get you to that position or get you to where you want the company to grow. For instance, I'm trying to roll out, you know, one, a more digital approach to how we collaborate and how we work with companies. And as well as I'm trying to focus on my clientele to be more in the tech space, you know, Series B, Series C finance companies where they don't have a strong accounting team and we can slot in as a strong financial advisor, but understanding their company and their technology and what they do. So 
how do I convince, you know, my team that I just joined of my vision? And a lot of it is leading by example. So we, we use Google and we use Google Suite. And I've used that at PwC as well. And collaborating together using Google Docs and Google Slides is actually inviting people at meetings to actually touch and feel and to promote whatever you're trying to roll out to actually lead by example and to do it and to see that light bulb click or turn on and like, wow, this is actually really efficient. I should do it this way and not the old way that I've been used to for so many years. I love it. I love it. And then motivate your team to just get out there and hustle and learn how to code and potentially just contribute <laughs> to the founders who are building their startups. <laughs> yeah. I like it. In terms of, I guess, the experience and in industry that you've had, you've also been involved in a few cannabis transactions, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. So I guess, what would be your suggestion to the entrepreneurs there? Is the space already overcrowded? Can more people get into it? What should they do if they're in the space? What do you think? That's an interesting question. In 2017, uh, I was an early investor on whatever was publicly traded at the time. And that was a great bet because at the time, it was like an industry that popped up out of nowhere, kind of like how electric vehicles are right now. Like it's a big hype thing. And so I wrote that wave and it's exactly as you said, all of a sudden there are a ton of new entrants, lots of licenses out there granted by Health Canada. So there's lots of licensed producers. Now there's lots of retail dispensaries up and around Toronto. I worked on two restructurings in the cannabis space and what I saw during that time and you know, my information is about six months old now was there is too much supply at this time for the amount of demand that's out there. There's actually a bottleneck. The bottleneck is the granting of licenses for dispensaries and getting that flow through. All the supply is actually being stuck at all the licensed producers. So there's a lot of inventory that all these LPs have, but not enough flow through because there's only a handful of retail dispensaries around, but if LCBO or Shoppers Drug Mart, you know, ends up being, a, I don't know if they've actually started dispensing or not, but once you get that flow, I think things will start to change. Maybe the demand will finally reach uh, the supply that's out there. But at the time, supply was high, which means the sale price of per gram uh, became extremely low, you know price demand, you know, economics, you know, revenues were really small, which then led to valuation adjust impairments, which then led to, you know, lower deals, you know, being had and less cash flowing. And obviously the equity markets are a key indicator of that. I mean, I think almost every cannabis stock lost like 90% in 2019, 2020. And so it's just things like that, where I think eventually, you know, companies will start to consolidate kind of like how the alcohol industry has. But uh, I think it's still to be seen because I think when U.S., if it becomes fully legalized, that's 300 million people. And I wonder if that'll and that should create significant demand. I think we're kind of at a let's wait and see. We had the huge run in 1718. We had a huge crash in 1920. And now it's like, okay, we're consolidating. This COVID thing's happening. And where do we go from here? So I think we're kind of in that 
gray area. We're in this waiting limbo. I was just going to say, you know, um, it seems like Canadian market of 35 people. I mean, if we remove uh, children, elderly people or people who don't consume cannabis, we're actually left with quite a small market. And I'm pretty sure Canadian cannabis companies can't really supply the global market where it is legal. So I think, yeah, you're right. We're just in this position of waiting and seeing. Now, the question is for all the tech companies that are connected to traveling or I guess experience or anything with aviation industry, so to speak, what do you think is going to happen to those companies and what should they look out for or what should they hope for? That's a great question because even right now I'm, I'm like, should I invest in uh, you know the hospitality sector right now? And it's hard to know. And I, I don't even know the answer to that one uh, as well because even if you think about going to the cottage or doing a weekend trip, like do I book an Airbnb? Do I go on some of the excursions and experiences that I would used to? The answer is, I don't know. Because even when, you know, I've, I've done a cottage uh, over the summer and even then we stayed in the whole time. We just hung out with friends and, you know, we cook and ate together and, you know, went on a couple hikes, but we didn't go into the village. We didn't go into the city. We didn't go to any of the bars. That's just a subset of people who are willing to go out on vacation or like a, even a staycation. But there's still tons of people who aren't even leaving their house or are much more conservative. So I don't know when this uh, market's going to recover. I watched a podcast on uh, Air Canada uh, talking about their current situation. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think they said 2022 to 23 is when they'll hopefully have an eco- full recovery. That's two to three years out. And with Europe getting their second wave and restrictions starting to come down and lockdowns starting to be put back on the table, I think your guess is as good as mine. So I guess at this point, all of those tech companies on travel and exciting opportunities with hospitality and external uh, experience is probably not the thing. Local is the way to go. But even with local experience, I feel like we're not really using all of our local services. I mean, you're completely right, right? Like if we're going somewhere close by for a hike or a cottage, we're not going necessarily to all the places and we're not really consuming at the same rate as if we would have been in Italy or France or somewhere else. Because you want to go on all the excursions when you're out there, you know, that's the one time you're going to be there, you know, and so you want to make the most out of it, you know, whereas, you know, when you're up in Collingwood, you're like, well, I could come here next week if I wanted to. <laughs> you know. So. I mean, you can pick up a bottle of maple syrup. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Now, I guess for you, you, you mentioned that you recently heard a podcast uh, about Air Canada. Now, are there any podcasts or maybe people, advisors, mentors, whose content you consume or you follow regularly because they provide a great perspective or opinions on the market in general? There's not one specific person I follow. And it's kind of what we talked about earlier, how I consume a lot of my news through the markets. So I'm, I just like keeping in tune with the markets and just understanding why things go the way they go, especially in this time where you know the common saying is, the main street is not Wall Street, meaning that the economy is not the stock market. I find it amazing how the stock market's been on such a tear 
and, you know, we have the highest unemployment rate or, you know, we have people laid off and just surviving on, uh, you know, government subsidies. And yet we've hit all time highs uh, in the stock market. So it's just watching, you know, content on, you know, just even YouTubers just explaining it's because of the low interest. It's because of, you know, Fed backstop is just understanding, you know, how the markets work. And I, I just, I find there's, a, like I said before, you know, whatever you want to know, it's on YouTube. And, you know, there's always someone there who has a good enough, you know, track record of knowledge that, you know, you're willing to follow. I love it that you mentioned that everything is on YouTube. One of my friends always says, everything you need is Googleable. So just go <laughs> out there yeah. and find your answers. No, you're absolutely right. Now, do you think personal opinion, absolute personal opinion, do you think we're nearing the second wave? Remember in March when the stock market crashed and uh, it was mayhem? Do you think that's going to happen again now with the U.S. election? I mean, COVID second wave and a lot of other things happening. So I think second wave in terms of health, I think that's coming. I think that's unquestionable because, you know, we're at 500 cases in Toronto and we were at only 100 at the beginning of August, right? And, you know, there's lots of debates of like why it's increasing, but let's just say it's increasing. And I think in March and April, worse was about 700 cases a day. So we're definitely like getting up there. The problem is maybe it's, you know, COVID fatigue, but lots more people are out and about, you know, we don't feel as confined as we did back then. So that raises more concern that, you know, more people are, are out there and potentially, you know, at risk. Now, what does that mean in terms of the market? Will the market drop? I like to have hedges in my portfolio, whether it's like put options, just to hedge that downside risk because that 30% drop in like two weeks was insane. And I watched every day as that happened. Whether that would happen again, I'm not sure because the Fed, being Jerome Powell, has said the U.S. will do everything in its power, you know, whatever, whatever it takes, essentially. And so when you have a sentiment like that, it's supposed to give investors like this comfort that everything's going to work out. So that might mean people don't sell their assets, you know, as things start to drop. So I'm hoping that that is the reality and maybe we get a couple more, you know, dips, but nothing as crazy as back then. The other thing that troubles me is that in the 2008 recession, 2008 had a massive dip, but then the actual global recession didn't happen until I think it was almost 12 or 14 months later, because then that's when the actual economy collapsed. So I'm hoping that right now that's not the case. And we don't know because even the Canadian government has been providing stimulus, whether it's the wage subsidies, whether it's the CERB and all of that, we can live comfortably. But at some point, and even in the States, at some point, the stimulus will need to stop when you know, they've deemed that a recovery has happened. So when all that free money goes away, what will actually happen with the market and the economy? So if there is a possibility that you know, we see another huge correction. And I'm hoping that's not the case, but I don't know because I think we're still in the middle of it. If we do get a wave too, that means we're probably going to have stimulus packages until you know, the middle of next year, you know, because this will go through winter and winter is always the worst time to have illness spread. It's 
kind of my take on it. No, and thank you for sharing it. Thank you for not shying away because I, I love this conversation that we're having right now because you're right. You know, if we look in the history, things trail for a while, even the real estate market, right? Like what we're experiencing right now in Toronto. I don't know if you're aware, but we've been looking for a house and uh, because of the rates are so low, a lot more people are in the market trying to buy something but supply is obviously lower. So that creates this artificial yeah, new yeah, bidding war, that, yeah. which for me right now, it's, you know, it, it sounds a little bit ridiculous because people don't even know what's going to happen, right? They don't even know if their interest rates are going to stay that low forever. And I'm sure a lot of people are extending themselves and uh, basically gambling with their future. So, And so on that point, like what would happen then if the wage subsidy stops and the SERP stops and you know, we actually have proper unemployment where a company, you know, another 10% or 20% of our workforce is laid off. Then all of a sudden people can't pay their mortgages, start putting their houses up for sale. And then you get that wave. We haven't even touched on like personal debt, personal bankruptcy. That's not an area that I specialize in, but I mean, I'm just saying like, that's a whole other, you know, beast to deal with as well. And like you said, right now, it feels like it's artificially propped. What happens when there's a day that, you know, there is no wage subsidies and all of a sudden companies are like, I can't get any more uh, money from the government. I need to cut my expenses. So I'm furloughing or I'm laying off half my employees. Then everyone has to go home and figure out what to do with the housing situation as well. <laughs> So. Well, and then you are the best person to ask those kind of questions because you see the companies who need to restructure and who are basically employing all the employees and giving the money for their mortgage, for their basic spending. And once banks decide to not defer their mortgages anymore, beyond the six months or 12 months, you're absolutely right. You know, potentially we might not see the default now or in a few months, but we could potentially see it in 12, 18 months and it might not be pretty. And just on that point, on our CFO practice, you know, I was working with some of our uh, team members where we help our clients uh, actually calculate the wage subsidy. And in this last back half or in period five to nine, as they call it, uh, from July through to the end of November, which is when the wage subsidy ends. There is a complicated formula, which I'm happy to get into. Anyone wants to go through it. But now it's a factor of how much revenue did you lose from COVID? And that's time some certain factoring calculation rate. This is now what your subsidy is. And it generally speaking, it's a lot lower now than it was in March and April. All of a sudden, companies who were relying on 75% of their salary expense, you know, capped at a certain level as, uh, you know, money in the pocket to pay, suddenly it's like, well, you know, revenues aren't as bad as they were in March, but they're still not great. And now I don't get to collect as much subsidies as I used to. Oh, I might have to actually think about, you know, can I sustain this headcount? And do I need to make reductions? And that's going to be the basically a sign for everyone to run for the hills. I don't know. <laughs> I don't I'm not know. trying to create panic either. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. And I appreciate you being so candid and, you know, giving us all of this information. Obviously, everything is your personal opinion, but that's kind of how people get to understand what's happening, get another piece of information, and hopefully this is helpful for someone. I guess uh, to bring us to the next point, every guest who comes on the show, we ask the following. 
a millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. Are you ready? All right. A millennial is. I will say a millennial is the up-and-coming leaders of industry. And I say that because, so I'm in the, uh, the back half of the 80s. So I'm not going to say when, but back half of the 80s. So according to this little chart that I see, uh, I'm an older millennial and I'm the last to grow up offline. And I remember that because I remember having a DOS computer. I remember having dial-up, you know, the very first iterations of, you know, Windows 95 and so on, having my first cell phone, the Nokia brick, and then a flip phone, going through all those iterations. And so I think the millennial should be the next leader. And in, so whatever organization you're in, Take that as an opportunity to leapfrog your position. Like I said, when I was at PwC, I, was, I got named a digital accelerator because I went for that program and I applied for it. And it's because we can be the most relatable now. We know what it was like when there wasn't technology. Dial up, you know, like home phones, all of that, rolling car windows, you know, all that good stuff. And so we can relate to the actual decision makers in companies. You know, how many times have you had to fax something or how many times have you had to walk your superiors through something? So if you want to be the digital change, now's the time because you can understand how an organization needs to switch to the digital age. It could be something as simple as going Google. You know, um, PwC uses it. My new company now uses it and it's fantastic. But now it's, how do I convince my decision makers and my management team that this is the right way forward? And it's leading by example. And then two, uh, the reason why I say this is a great time for millennials is because we're still young enough and we're still connected in with tech enough to be able to understand, you know, the 20-year-old interns coming in with all this new technology and all these new apps and all of that. I do got to admit, I'm starting to slow down a little bit, but it's having that bridge. And I think if you want to be a leader in industry, that's how you go about it. It's to promote digital revolution and digital change and be the champion for that. Because if you successfully implement and you save a company a ton of money, management remembers you and, you know, that's just great for your career overall. And, and that'll take you, you know, put it on your resume and that'll take you to whatever other job you want to work for as well. So I think that's important. And I think as a millennial, you know, that's where your value add is. I love it. Wait, hold on a second. Do you have a TikTok account? <laughs> I do not. Well, do you not. see, I guess, I guess you are slowing <laughs> I down. Am, yeah, I know. <laughs> At least I still, I still use Instagram, but <laughs> I do. No, I, I love how you said that you are the leader in the technological change in your organizations. And I think you've used all of your passions and tech and, you know, entrepreneurship and you funneled it into your role that you were performing in your previous company at WC. And then now you're basically an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's a good opportunity to point out that not every person has to create a company or something. You can lead something within a large organization and then help others to succeed and other companies to prosper. And then I guess the next question is, a millennial is not. Go wild. 
uh, it's not lazy. Is that the stereotype that everyone says? <laughs> yeah, it's actually funny enough. Everybody says that. Uh, it's either that or lazy, uh, placent or screwed. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm sure all the people that you've had on your podcast, I think it's a different, I guess, guide compared, you know, if an older generation were looking at, uh, you know, what they're doing these days. Because e-commerce, as an example, all those people doing YouTube as a career or drop shipping or, you know, Amazon fulfillment or any courses online, like those are all forms of business that millennials and, you know, the generation after us are familiar with and take advantage of it. Whereas it could be seen as, oh, look, it's the guy at the coffee shop on his laptop all the time, right? So value now is distributed and it's perceived differently. And sometimes it's at the end of the day, it's, you know, work smarter, not harder. Just because you put in 12 hour days does not mean you're going to be, you know, further ahead or make more money, especially not in these days where you have a huge audience following and you can make way more than a, you know, corporate professional, right? So it's crazy how the economics of this world works now. I so much appreciate that you mentioned this. You know, a lot of people have this misconception that uh, life is linear. So, you know, whatever you put in is whatever you take out. And as you said, if you work smarter, not harder, you might achieve, you know, greater success because sometimes things are exponential. If you just focus on the right key things, I don't know, maybe that coding class that you're going to take or maybe learning more about Amazon, dropshipping, maybe we'll create this existential wealth that you were dreaming of versus, (laughs) I don't know, trying to go and get a regular job. It depends on the hustle, grit and and perseverance. Yeah, yeah. And remember, everyone, 99% fail and 1%. So (laughs) (laughs) don't go out and quit your job the next day, (laughs) obviously. I love it. I love it. You're totally right. Now, is there anything that we haven't discussed so far? Is there something that you want to mention that I didn't ask or we haven't had a chance to talk about? I don't think there is. I think, you know, if uh, just going back to the, you know, managing through a crisis and managing through the downturn, you know, so I, I am a CA by trade. You know, I've done my whole accounting route and I've done financial consulting for the last, you know, eight years with companies through distress. You know, if anyone, you know, wants to dive into this detail a little further, you know, you know, please reach out. But at the end of the day, that common phrase, cash is king. So long as you know where your cash is, you know, no one can hurt you because you know when it runs out, who you need to pay, when money's coming in. And if you update that document that we talked about, the 13 week cash flow. And, you know, you check your bank accounts the morning of every day and you figure out who you need to pay and you're reconciling all of that, then, you know, that's the best position uh, you can be in, especially in today's economy. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Now, if people want to reach out and they realize they need additional help, where do they find you? How can they connect with you to learn more? So you can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. So Wilson Kwan, K-W-A-N. I was just going to say, you know, not TikTok for sure. You're not creating a TikTok. (laughs) I think LinkedIn is great. I mean, obviously they can reach out to you on your company website, go on fanadvisors.com. On this note, thank you for being with me uh, for a very long time today and missing the sunshine outside. I think you can still catch some of it. I'm very excited to have you later on, maybe in a few months after 
potentially we hit maybe a second wave, maybe not, to just see how things change maybe after the U.S. election and to see, you know, what your outlook is on the economy, on the companies and what's happening in these two in general. Sounds good. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Maria, for this opportunity and uh, happy to come on uh, the next time when you're looking for it. Thank you, Wilson. Thank you, Wilson.